Hey, I'm Michael, online pastor at Silverdale Baptist Church, and I'm excited to welcome you to our podcast. Now, after you listen to this episode, I hope you'll stick around for just a moment. I'll be sharing about some resources we have for you, as well as a few things going on at Silverdale right now that we would love for you to be a part of. Now, I really hope this podcast is just what you need today to help you in your relationship with Jesus. trial took place. 93 years ago, all of America's attention was on this courtroom. We had two titans of the political realm face off. You had William Jennings Bryan, who was a three-time presidential candidate. He spoke for the biblical worldview. And then you had Clarence Darrow, and he spoke for the atheistic worldview, who said that science and faith cannot go together. The climax of the trial was whenever William Jennings Bryan took the stand and Clarence Darrow asked him these questions. He said, do you really believe that God created Eve from the rib of Adam? Do you really believe that Eve was tempted by the serpent? Do you really believe that there was a flood and a boat and animals coming two by two? And if Adam and Eve were the only ones on the planet, then where did their son Cain get his wife? And when William Jennings Bryan affirmed his biblical belief, then Clarence Darrow made this declaration. He said, you insult every man of science and learning in the world because he does not believe in your full religion. Is Christianity a fool's religion? Is it impossible to reconcile faith and science? I believe you can. I'm a man of science and I'm a man of faith. So what do you do with your doubts? We all go through those times of doubt in our lives, and this is especially true during times of transition. You go off to college, and some philosophy professor begins to question your faith, and then doubts arrive. Or, you know what? You go through a difficult time in life. Maybe it's a heartache. Maybe it's a time of suffering. Maybe there's been a death in your family, and whenever you start grieving, you start questioning. We all have those doubts in our life. How do you deal with doubts? And a lot of us have the wrong view of God. We think that God is up in heaven and he hates all doubters. It's like God is throwing a tantrum saying, quit asking me so many questions. Almost like we think that God is Darth Vader. I find your lack of faith disturbing. I find your lack of faith disturbing. (laughs) God is not like that. In fact, God's just the opposite. He can handle our questions. The fact is, you study the Bible, many of our heroes of faith are amazing people, and they had questions. You got Jacob, he wrestled with God. Job, he questioned God. Moses, he debated with God. David, he, you know, complained to God. And yet every one of them were great people of faith. God can handle our questions. Today, we're going to look at one of the most famous skeptics in the Bible. In fact, he has the name Doubting Thomas. And yet, from his encounter with Jesus Christ, we're going to learn how to overcome our doubts. Let me set the story up for you. It was Easter Sunday morning. The stone was rolled away. 
The tomb was empty, and yet there were questions. Was the body stolen or was Jesus alive? That evening, all the disciples were in the upper room and the doors were locked when suddenly Jesus appeared in their very midst. Freaked them out. (laughs) You know what he did? He spoke with them. He had a meal with them. He let them touch him to prove that he was alive. And they were so excited that Christ was alive. And yet, one of the disciples was not there that night. Look at it. John chapter 20, verse 24. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, the twin, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So where was Thomas? We don't know. Maybe he was making a Starbucks run, but he wasn't there. And so the disciples, they were excited and they say, Jesus is alive. Check it out. Verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. And you can imagine how pumped they were. And yet Thomas said, nope, not going to believe it. I mean, I saw him crucified. I, I saw his lifeless body. There's no way I can believe this. I've got to have empirical evidence. This does not rationally make sense. Look at how he says this in verse 25. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And that is why we call him Doubting Thomas. Ten of his closest friends were saying Jesus was alive and yet he wouldn't believe it. He's like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid. I will not believe. So from this story and Thomas and his doubts and his encounter with the resurrected Christ, we're going to learn how to rise above your doubts and unbelief. I want you to jot down several things today about doubts and how to rise above doubts. The first thing I want you to jot down is the cause of doubts. What causes doubts? You see, if you have doubts in your life, it's because there's something that caused it. Every one of us have a general belief in God. We're born with it. In fact, you can check all of history. You can go to the ends of this earth and look at every civilization, even the remotest tribes that's never been in contact with civilization, and you'll see that they have a belief in God. And so if you don't believe in God, there's a reason why. In fact, that's why whenever you're going through a time of suffering, in your very psyche, you will start praying. Did you know that 17% of atheists pray every week? Because internally, we all know there's a God. And if you doubt there's a God, there's something that caused it. I want you to jot down a couple of causes for doubts. The very first one is disappointments in life. We all have disappointments. We all have heartache. We all have pain. Almost all of us are familiar with Ted Turner, graduated from Macaulay in town. You know, he was even thinking about going into the ministry until his younger sister came down with lupus. From 12 till 17 years old, she suffered with lupus, and she was in great pain. Ted Turner said he prayed for her every day, and she even begged at some times just to die because of the pain. And when she died, his faith died. He said, how can a loving God allow my sister to suffer like that? All of us have had times of suffering and pain. You study the Bible, you find great men and women of the faith that suffered as well. You have an entire book of the Bible, Job. Job suffered in unimaginable ways, and yet his suffering didn't push him away from God. No, it pushed him into God. That's what I've discovered as a pastor. Suffering will either cause your heart to be hardened to God or soften to God. Suffering will either make you bitter or better. It's all in your response 
to suffering. In this passage, we find Thomas doubting. And part of the reason why Thomas is doubting is because Jesus has let him down. You see, Thomas had no category for a dying, crucified Messiah. The Messiah is supposed to be conquered. The Messiah is not supposed to be killed. And besides that, this was probably very personal to Thomas. Most of his friends and family probably told him whenever he was going to leave everything and follow Jesus, they're like, what? You're going to go follow this preacher around? And now that Jesus is dead, all their fears are coming true. And now, whenever Jesus died, so did all of Thomas's hopes. Has God ever let you down? Was there a prayer request that God didn't answer? And maybe it wasn't with God. Maybe it was someone who claimed to be a follower of God, a friend who stabbed you in the back, or maybe some preacher who preached one thing but didn't live it out. Or maybe there was some other circumstance in your life where you had a trial and a difficulty, you had a season of pain in your life, and you wonder, where's God? Maybe it was your spouse. They said, I do, and then they say, I don't. And that suffering has caused a lot of doubts in your life. Are disappointments in life enough to not believe that there's a God? I believe it's not. Objection is overruled. There's a second reason why we doubt, and it's this. You can jot this on your outline. And that is a struggle between faith and reason. A struggle between faith and reason. You're struggling between the supernatural realm and the natural world. That's what this Scopes Monkey Trial was all about. They said that faith and science were irreconcilable, but I believe they can be reconciled. That's what was happening with Thomas. He could not comprehend how Jesus could be alive. Thomas had heard the religious leaders cry for Jesus' blood. He saw the Roman whip on Jesus' back. He felt the, the pain and weight whenever they put that timber on Jesus. He winced in pain whenever they put the nails in Jesus' hands and feet. He saw him breathe his last breath. He saw the Roman spear go into his side and puncture into his heart. Thomas is like, there's no way he could be alive. No one can come back after that kind of death. Look at it again in verse 25. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, I want to quickly add that faith and reason and science are not mutually exclusive ideas. There's a number of brilliant scientists that are also followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, let me clearly state that every worldview has a faith presupposition. Let me say that again. Every worldview has a faith presupposition. Even the most noted atheist in the world, Richard Dawkins, will admit that he has a faith presupposition. Once when he was asked whether he could be completely sure that there was no God, listen to how he answered. He said, quote, I cannot know for certain, but I believe God is very improbable and I live my life on the assumption God is not there. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying he's making a faith assumption. Every worldview has a faith assumption. And I can take you to hundreds of brilliant scientists that have a faith assumption as well, that Jesus Christ is alive. Just because you can't reconcile faith and reason together doesn't mean it can't be reconciled. Objection overruled. 
There's one other cause for doubts, and you can jot this on your outline, and it's our leaning towards sinfulness. We all have a leaning towards sinfulness. You see, a lot of people don't want to believe that there's a God and don't want to believe that the Bible's true. Why? Because they'll mess with their lifestyle. (laughs) Now, this isn't necessarily the case with Thomas, but in the culture we live in, they do not want to believe in God because it will mess with their lifestyle. I love the honesty of philosopher Aldous Huxley. He came up with the term agnostic. He wrote this in Brave New World. He says this, quote, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning and consequently assumed that they had none. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation, a liberation from certain system of moralities. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I wanted to live a certain way, so I'm going to assume there's no God, I'm going to assume there is no morals, I'm going to assume there is no Bible, and that way I can live any way I want to. A great deal of our doubts come from our tendency towards sinfulness. You see, sin is fun for a season. It is. Sin's fun for a season. Now, some people say, no, sin's not fun. Then you're not doing it right. Sin is fun, but then it's not fun. Sin's a lot like sneezing. When it comes out, it feels so good, but then there's snot everywhere. That's the way sin is. It feels good at first, but then it leaves you with a mess, and a lot of people are in a mess. A lot of people don't believe in God because they want to live their own lifestyle. That's no objection to the belief in God. Objection overruled. Now, a lot of people say they can't believe because they have a head problem with faith. But as we've seen, it's not a head problem. It's a heart problem. And whenever you get your heart right, then it takes care of the head. In fact, jot down this principle. The mind will never accept what the heart has already rejected. Let me say that again. The mind will never accept what the heart has already rejected. If you've had those times of heartache and pain in your life, it will cause doubts. If you have a lifestyle that you don't want God messing with, it will cause doubts. But it's not a head problem, it's a heart problem. And if you'll allow God to heal your heart, suddenly you won't have the doubts anymore. I want you to hear the story and testimony of Anne Rice. She is the best-selling author of the book and movie blockbuster, Interview with a Vampire. She was a philosophy and literature major and believed that if she was going to be a person of the modern world, she had to give up her childish belief in God. And for most of her life, she lived as an atheist. I want you to see how she came back to faith. You know, I I wanted so much to understand the wide world that was opening up to me in college. And the world did open up, but it opened up in a somber and darkened way. And that really never changed. I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was doing the realistic thing, the mature thing. I bought that to grow up one has to put aside God. And I began my adventures uh, as a student of the modern world and uh, as an agnostic or an atheist. And that lasted for me for 38 years. 38 years. The first goal of my life after my break with faith was really to get a college education. And I wanted to be a writer, but my aspirations were very vague at that time. I didn't have a narrative yet, a story. And it was, I guess, in my 30s that I wrote 
um, that I wrote Interview with the Vampire, my first published novel, and that was a life-changing event. That was my first professional uh, accomplishment. Of course, what all these books were doing is they were reflecting my own feelings, my own feelings as an agnostic and atheist that that I was cut off from God, that I couldn't ever believe again as I had when I was a child, and my own increasing dissatisfaction with a world in which salvation is not a possibility. I was a Christ-haunted person. I was a Christ-haunted atheist. I was a person haunted by God, and my writing is just littered with accoutrements of the struggle. And yet, there's evidence there that I was called back again and again to the idea that as long as you're denying God, you will not know any rest, you will not know any peace. You can't save yourself through art, you can't save yourself through music, you can't do it through travel, you can't do it through wealth. All your attempts at saving and transcending through other means will ultimately fail. You know, you save yourself, or God saves you when you turn to Him. And finally, after 38 years of denying that, I found myself very ready to go back to God and to give my life over to Him. It suddenly hit me, He knows the answers. To go back to God, I don't have to pass an examination. I don't have to know. I can go home. I can say to Him, look, I've always loved you. The universe has always told me that you exist. You will take us home. You will, you will bring us home. And I just surrendered at that moment. I surrendered the theological and sociological questions. I surrendered the doubts um, imperfectly and contrite. I went back. Today, we have been learning how to rise above doubts and unbelief. And as I mentioned, that if you have doubts with a belief in God and Christ, then there's a reason why. There's some cause of that. There's something that's happened in your heart that has hurt you, and that's why you have that doubts. And that is exactly where Thomas was. Thomas was disappointed in Jesus Christ. But from this passage and encounter in John 20, we're going to learn how to rise above that. So this is the next thing I want you to jot on your outline. Jot this down. The cure for doubts. The cure for doubts. See, I believe that Thomas is probably the best example of someone who said, I cannot believe, and then he meets the resurrected Christ, and suddenly he believes. How did that happen? Well, it all happened through an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Look at it again. It's found in John chapter 20, verse 26. Look at what God's Word says. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time, okay? Though the doors were locked, look at it, Jesus came and stood among them. I love that. I mean, suddenly, boom, Jesus is there, right? I mean, you can't keep Jesus out. I hope you understand that. The, the, the stone could not keep Jesus in the tomb. A locked door is not going to keep Jesus out of that room. Now, I don't know exactly how Jesus did it, but he did it, okay? I don't know if he walked through the walls or just beamed down. I don't know, but he did it, okay? Now, a lot of Jesus' miracles were always amazing. You know, lame walk, blind see, those are crazy cool, right? But suddenly, boom, walking through the walls, that's pretty cool too. And so here's Jesus in their very midst, and what does he say? Look at it in verse 26. Jesus said, peace be with you. Folks, every time Jesus comes, he gives you peace. So it's like Jesus makes this ultimate entrance. Suddenly, he appears and goes, peace, y'all, drop the mic, right? I mean, that's it. Jesus is like, oh, my goodness, it's Christ. But what's so cool about this story is that Jesus 
doesn't talk with any of the other disciples. He's already had a conversation with them earlier. He's got a beeline for one person. He wants to see Thomas. Check it out. Look at it at verse 27. He said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out. Put your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. See, Jesus gave Thomas exactly what Thomas needed to believe. You go, well, how did Jesus know that Thomas said that he wouldn't believe unless he touched him? Well, Jesus knows. Jesus is God. Jesus knows what Thomas thinks and says, and Jesus knows what you think and say as well. But you know what I love about this passage is what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't come to Thomas and say, Thomas, you blew it. You had doubts. You didn't believe. Out of here. Get out of this room. You're no longer my disciples, right? He didn't say that. No, he gave Jesus, I mean, he gave Thomas exactly what Thomas needed to believe. I believe God will give you exactly what you need as well. In fact, this is what I want you to do. I want to give you the three things that will cure doubts and unbelief. Ready? Here it is. Jot this down on your outline. Number one is this. It's the evidence of the resurrection. The evidence of the resurrection. Our faith is ultimately built on one event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did you know that the religious leaders once came to Jesus and said, Jesus, we need some proof. We need some evidence of of who you claim to be. It's found, look at it, in John chapter 2, verse 18. The Bible says this. The religious leaders asked Jesus, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Here's Jesus' answer. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The temple he was spoken of was his body. Jesus said, You want some evidence of who I am? It is the resurrection. You see, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, he's a liar. But if Jesus Christ rose again, he is Lord. It's amazing, whenever Christ came to Thomas, he did not answer all of Thomas's objections. He didn't answer all the heartache, all the disappointments that Thomas had with him. He didn't. All he did was show him that he was alive. Thomas quit demanding an explanation, and he submitted to revelation. Jesus Christ is alive. The resurrection of Christ alone is enough to have faith. You see, the problem with a lot of us as Christians is that we have built our faith sort of like a house of cards. I don't know if you ever did this as a kid. You know, you you build a house of cards. And if you've ever done that before, you know that every card is critical. And if you remove just one card, what happens? The house of cards comes tumbling down, right? Well, that's the way that a lot of you are with your faith. You see, what you've done is you've built your faith on all these beliefs. And you think that all these beliefs are equal. Okay, I've got these beliefs, I've got these dogmas, I've got these doctrines, and I've I've built my faith. And then all it takes is one little doubt. One little doubt about one little belief, and what happens? Suddenly your whole house of faith comes tumbling down. Jesus said, that's not how you build your faith. You build your faith on one event, the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the rock-solid evidence of the Christian faith. You build your faith on the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection. That is the very gospel of Christ. If that happened, then Jesus is who he claimed to be. If it didn't happen, then Jesus isn't who he claimed to be. It's just that simple. And so... Did Jesus rise again? 
The answer is absolutely he did. He, in fact, there are so many books, so much evidence. See, nobody doubts the existence of Christ. There, there's nobody that doubts the death of Jesus Christ. And there's so many scholars that have basically proven the reality, the authenticity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you leave here today and you need more empirical evidence, we're going to give it to you. If you're here today, we have purchased this book called A Case for Easter. If you're here and you need more evidence of the resurrection, it's out there. Okay? Now, we don't have enough for everybody in this room, but we got a lot of them. So if you need evidence, we're going to provide it for you. This book right here is written by Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was an atheist. He was an investigative journalist. He was a lawyer. And he did not believe in Christ. But then he started investigating the resurrection of Christ, and it changed his life. Why? Because he realized it was true. Check out his testimony. I want you to see this, Lee Strobel. When I was an atheist and legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, I would have smirked at the fact that Easter this year falls on April Fool's Day. Because back then, I thought that anyone would have to be a fool to think that Jesus literally rose from the dead. One day, my wife gave me the news that she'd become a Christian. And so I decided to take my journalism training and legal training and debunk the resurrection of Jesus. So I spent two years of my life analyzing the historical data. And what I found really shocked me. I recounted in my book, The Case for Miracles. First of all, I found that there's no dispute among scholars that Jesus was dead after being crucified. Uh, the famous atheist New Testament scholar, Gerd Ludeman, says it's historically indisputable that he was dead. The Journal of the American Medical Association says that based on the historical and medical evidence, that Jesus was clearly dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. Second, we have early reports of the resurrection of Jesus, reports that come so quickly you can't just write them off as being a legend. In fact, we have one report of the resurrection, including named eyewitnesses, that has been dated back by scholars to within months of the death of Jesus. Friends, that is historical gold. Third, we have the empty tomb. And I found that even the opponents of Jesus implicitly conceded that the tomb of Jesus was empty. And then fourth, we have nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. Friends, that is an avalanche of historical data. And then we have seven ancient sources inside and mostly outside the New Testament that confirmed that the disciples lived lives of deprivation and suffering as a result of their proclamation that Jesus had risen. Why were they willing to do that? Because they heard a rumor that he'd risen? No, because they were there. They touched him. They ate with him. They talked with him. They knew the truth. And knowing the truth, they were willing to proclaim it, even despite the suffering they endured. Friends, I spent two years investigating this evidence. And it came down to one day when I reviewed it all and I thought, you know what? Based on the historical data, my verdict is that Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, he backed up that claim by returning from the dead. And that's the moment that I decided to confess my sin, to turn from that, to receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased for me on the cross. And at that moment, I became a child of God. Some people have a rush of emotion 
at that moment? I didn't. You know what I had? I had the rush of reason. Because the resurrection of Jesus is not some April Fool's Day joke. It is a historical reality based not on mythology or make-believe or wishful thinking, but a solid foundation of historical truth. I love that where he says, I had a rush of reason. You see, when you come to church, you don't have to put your brain, check it at the door. You see, there is evidence for what we believe in. I mean, for me, what, what really convinced me the most was the number of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus alive. It wasn't just a handful. No, it was as many as 500 at one time saw Jesus alive. And most of them gave their life for that belief. I mean, think about it. Here's Thomas. He's a skeptic. And yet after the encounter with Jesus Christ alive, you know what Thomas did? He left Jerusalem. He went as a missionary to India, lived a life of poverty, preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. He was speared to death by pagan priests there in India, all confessing the fact that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Why would he do that? Because he saw Jesus alive. You think of another skeptic, the Apostle Paul. He killed Christians until he met the resurrected Christ, and then he gave his life for Jesus and his faith. Another skeptic in the Bible is the half-brother of Jesus, James. The, um, the secular historian um, Josephus said that James became one of the early leaders of the early church, but then was stoned because of his testimony that he saw his brother, Jesus Christ, rise again. I mean, I don't know about you. I have an older brother. What would it take to convince you that your older brother was the sinless son of God? I mean, I could probably convince you that your older brother was the devil incarnate, sent on earth to terrorize your world, but the sin is son of God. And yet, James says, no, I saw him alive, and then he gave his life for that testimony. Why would people do this? People don't die for a lie they make up. They died for their faith because they saw Jesus Christ alive. If you want the ultimate cure for your doubts, you investigate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the proof. There's a second cure if you're going to overcome your doubts, and it's this. Jot this down. You've got to have a willingness to believe. You've got to have a willingness to believe. You've got to have the humility to say, you know what? I'm not God. And do I really think a pea brain like me can figure out everything? We can't. You see, so many people have such arrogance, and they think they're smarter than God, and so they'll never allow themselves to believe. And yet, you've got to have a willingness to believe before you ever will. In fact, look at how Jesus put this. In John chapter 7, verse 17, Jesus says this. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So what comes first? A willingness to believe or belief? You've got to have a willingness to believe. You've got to humble yourself and say, God, I, I, I know that I can't rationally figure it all out. So, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to have a willingness to investigate this stuff. I've had a number of conversations with dozens of people that had some issues and objection toward God. And I typically will say this. If you have a sincere heart to really know the truth, I can point you to Many books that give you the evidence of whatever you need, whatever philosophy. You, you point to a field of science, I will take you to a believer that will give you the evidence of Jesus Christ. But you've got to have a willingness to believe. 
Why? Because if you've got some arrogance and you think you're better than God, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you're going to really believe, you've got to have a willingness to believe. But then there's a third thing. This will help you overcome your doubts, and it's this. <clears throat> a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. The, the thing that really settles all doubts is whenever you personally receive Christ and realize this is real. You see, Christianity is not a philosophy to believe. Christianity is a person in which you follow. Think about it. Here's Thomas. Thomas had all these doubts. He said, I will not believe. And then he has one encounter with Jesus Christ. And suddenly he believes. I love this old Italian painting of that event whenever Thomas sees Jesus for the first time. You, you see Jesus grabbing Thomas's arm and moving it toward him and said, you said you need to touch me? Here you go, touch away. Why? Because he's saying, Thomas, you're going to be one of my apostolic witnesses. I need to make sure you have absolutely no doubts. And then Thomas makes one of the greatest confessions of faith found in the entire Bible. Look at it. It's amazing. John chapter 20, verse 28. After he sees Jesus Christ, this is what Thomas says. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now, if you've ever had doubts or questions about the deity of Jesus Christ, Thomas clears it up for you right there. My Lord and my God. You know, any other time in the Bible, if somebody is worshipped as God and they're not, you know what they do? They go, no, 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 don't worship me. Don't blaspheme God. I'm not God. Don't worship me. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, I accept your worship because I am the Lord and the God and God. And that's what happened with Thomas. Thomas suddenly had no more doubts because he had met Jesus Christ. You go, what about me? Well, this is what Jesus says to you in verse 29. Look at it. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. That's you and that's me. We haven't physically seen Jesus Christ. And yet, whenever we have a willingness to believe, we see the empirical evidence and we then make a choice, I'm going to believe. I, I see this, Lord. I'm going to believe. And we step out in faith. That's whenever suddenly we have an encounter with Jesus Christ. You see, some of you here have secondhand faith. And that's why you've never changed. You, you, you've adopted a belief system, but you've never really met the living Jesus Christ. And you've never been changed because you've never truly said, Jesus, you are now my Lord and my God. You know, the fact is, is I've had people that have told me through the years, they've said, you know what, I used to believe, but I don't believe in Jesus anymore. And I'm like, I can't comprehend that. Do you know why? For me to deny Christ would be like me denying my wife or, or the existence of my children or, or my best friends. I mean, Christ is just that real to me, and he will be just that real to you. In fact, I want to give you a little definition of faith. Jot this on your outline. Faith is the unexplainable meeting the undeniable. Faith is the unexplainable. That means I can't figure it all out. I, I can't answer all the questions, but it is undeniable. Me and my relationship with Christ is undeniable. I mean, I think about my life. I mean, I was a lost, alcoholic, destructive young man. And then I call on Jesus Christ, and he gives me purpose and meaning and life and he transforms me at that moment that I said Jesus you are my Lord and you're my God 
Listen to me. Christianity is not a philosophy to believe. It's not a teaching to learn. It's not a religion to practice. Christianity is a person, the person of Jesus Christ, and you have to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, and when you do, that's when you'll know. Suddenly, the unexplainable meets the undeniable, and his name is Jesus Christ. And in that moment, you'll be changed. Now, I believe that there are many of you here today that need to make that decision. You go, well, how do you do that? Well, the Apostle Paul lays out very clearly how a person comes to that declaration of faith. It's found in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Look at how the Apostle Paul says this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see how important the resurrection is? Paul didn't say you got to believe in all the other miracles Jesus did. I believe he did them all. But the most important miracle is what? The resurrection. You've got to believe in the resurrection. And then you call on him as your Lord. You go, how do you do that? In simple prayer. Look at how he says this in verse 13. He says, for whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. See that word whosoever? That's you. That promise is for you. Many of you are here today, and in your heart of hearts, you know it's time. It's time for you to quit demanding an explanation and submit to the revelation that Jesus Christ is who he claimed he is. You say, Christ, you win. I surrender all. I believe. Well, I hope this was helpful to you. If while listening, you realized you need to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us by clicking the link in the show notes to our website and then clicking the connect card button. In our weekend worship services, we are in a six-week sermon series called Jesus in the Midst. John chapter 13 and 14 record Jesus's final words to his disciples in the upper room. They're about to enter the darkest moment in history and Jesus shares with them the essentials of what they need to walk through them. You know, the things they needed in the midst of their darkest hour are the same things we need in ours. We would love for you to join each week at one of our campuses or online. You will find service times by clicking the link in the show notes to our website. Lastly, there are so many ways for you to get involved and be a part of what God is doing at Silverdale. We really want you to feel welcome and a part. So please stay connected. Be sure to like and follow us on all our different social media accounts. You'll find all the links in the show notes of this episode. And lastly, help us spread the word about this podcast. Take a moment to share this episode with your family and friends. Again, We appreciate you listening and hope you will join us again next time.